0: We are starting, though, talking about the return of the school liaison officer program to Vancouver schools and what that might look like. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Lois Chan-Pedley, a Vancouver School Board trustee with the Vancouver Green Party. Uh, Trustee Chan-Pedley, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you, Jill. It's great to be here. Well, it is uh, an issue that certainly is getting a lot of attention and a lot of discussion. So we know a little bit more about what the new program, kind of the revamped program, is going to look like starting in September. Uh, How would you describe it or, or what will it look like?
1: It sounds like um, they're bringing back different uniforms and smaller guns, um, and uh, they're pledging some additional training, uh, but the details are still a bit hazy. So um, I, I'm really, you know, just waiting for uh, the negotiated MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, to come out Um before uh, being able to really have a clear picture about it
0: so what we do know and and what you touched on there then and what i've been seeing on this that if we look at the uniforms instead of the the standard issue uniform that people would see police officers in uh, out and about in vancouver uh, the transition will be to something like a polo style shirt or hiking pants or it seems like it would be something more casual
1: That's right. Yeah, I think that's what it sounds like. Um, And uh, a smaller firearms is also a part of the reimagined program, it sounds like, um, which um, I, you know, I really want to see no uniforms and no guns. And I think, um, you know, it's good to see that they're willing to make some changes to the program. I would really like to see them to go further and go with no uniforms and no guns at all. Um, for me, guns are uh, a deadly weapon, um, no matter the size, and I don't think they have a place in schools. So that's yeah, that's how um, that's how I would uh, uh, I would encourage them to just move a step further.
0: And and um, just to kind of go back on that, why would you like to see them as well not wearing uniforms?
1: Um, uniforms have been um, a a. Uh, a point of contention in the uh, the Argyle report that was previously done and the consultation that was previously done, um, uniforms uh, just have that intimidation effect in schools, and we want to make sure that students feel safe in schools. Um, I know uh, you know polo shirts and and uh, khaki pants are. Uh, a bit more casual, and um, maybe they're a little less intimidating. Um, and uh, you know and I think that's something that that would be if there's an ongoing review of this piece, I think that's something that they could keep looking at. Um, and I really would want to see um, oversight and ongoing review of this program moving forward. I think that you know that is the most important thing for me. Uh, for this program to have. And that's, uh, that's something that I haven't seen in the report so far. I would really like to see that uh, added in the
0: MOU. Right. And I know already uh, there there has been some reaction on social media from some members of, of the VPD. And a lot of the reaction seems to be focused on the issue of carrying firearms. And one of the reasons, given that a police officer, whether a beat officer or in a different unit or a school liaison officer, always has to be equipped and ready to respond to anything. Um, I, I'm curious, what are your thoughts about that? Because I, I think part of that conversation too is is a school liaison officer the same thing as a beat officer or an officer in a different section is their kind of uh, their role in the community the same what are your thoughts on that kind of pushback from VPD
1: um well I think that speaks to our different mandates right the the police's mandate is criminal justice um, our mandate of a school board is to have the Students' best interests in mind for their education and well-being, uh, and learning, and so on. So, um, I, I understand they have procedures and, and processes to follow um, and rules to follow regarding, um, you know, their equipment. Um, and um, I can't speak to, you know, what what they can or cannot carry. Um, but I think um, having the VSB oversight over a program that is going to run on our school grounds and they're here for educational purposes, um, I would like the VSB to have the oversight over, you know, these aspects of, of how the program will look like. Um, and that means, you know, having students, parents, teachers, um, and staff uh, from the VSB to, um, to be uh, in this oversight body that um, looks after the, the program.
0: Right, and I'm curious as well. When we talk about the uniform, and this is the kind of the casual version of the uniform, but if part of this program is to to try and kind of mend the broken relationship, like you said, there are uh, students in some cases who are intimidated by seeing police officers having police officers in their schools, and there are uh, certainly I, I think we can all agree that relationship in some cases has been damaged if the the role of this is to bring officers back and repair that wouldn't it be a good thing for students to be able to see a police officer in a police uniform but but get to the place where it's not intimidating this is somebody who's there to foster a better relationship and to make uh, make it uh, a better relationship so somebody's not frightened or or triggered at all by them right
1: and i think that's a great uh, place to work towards. I don't know if we're at that stage right now. Um, and I think so, you know, my personal feelings are, you know, not super relevant and, you know, the board has voted the way it has and the program is going to come back in 2023. Um, uh, uh, just we're in this reality. Um, and I think that uh, the reality right now is that uh, the a lot of students are intimidated by, this, by the uniforms and perhaps we could start out without the uniform. Um, but I think the ongoing thing um, for me is that there is a review and making sure that the program stays up to date and addressing the concerns that come up. Um, and maybe we can get to a place where, um, the, as you say, the relationship can be mended and that folks are not triggered by in uniform uh, in the schools with them. Um, I don't know if we're at that place right now. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's just kind of the unfortunate reality that we're in right now.
0: And you mentioned the memorandum of understanding. When do you anticipate that we might get more information or get a better idea on what the program is going to look like when it returns in September?
1: Um, I don't know all the details Right now, unfortunately, I think um, there will be updates on going to the uh, to the board um, uh, through the policy and governance uh, committee meetings. Um, but um, for me, as a trustee, the um, the this information I found out through the media myself, so I don't have a lot more information about exactly where it's going. All I know is the program will
0: come in september 2023 um and that's kind of just the reality all right well we will be waiting to see uh, when more details uh, are available on that Uh, trustee Mm -hmm. uh, chan chan pedley thank you so much for joining us uh, for talking more about this appreciate your time today thank you joe thanks so much Well, we have been hearing a lot about some proposed amendments. These are to the Air Passenger Protection Regulations in this country. Bill C-47 is the legislation. But will it actually improve the operation of our country's air travel system? Will it mean people will see compensation when they are left stranded? Or there is something that is not like a snowstorm. It is something that the airline is responsible for. Well, my next guest is here to talk more about this, Jeff Morrison is the president and CEO of the National Airlines Council of Canada. Jeff, thank you so much for being here.
2: Oh, thank you for inviting me. Uh,
0: The transport minister has been talking about this proposed legislation, saying it's going to close loopholes, it's going to make air travel so much better in this country. Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, it was interesting. You just started off this segment asking, will these changes announced yesterday improve air travel in Canada? And the short answer is no. Um, There is nothing that was in the announcement yesterday that will actually improve or strengthen air travel in Canada, which is frankly what we want. And we've uh, advocated for a number of measures that would do just that, because we know that for passengers, that's what they care about. They want to get to where they're trying to go safely, efficiently, with as minimal disruption as possible. And there was nothing in the changes yesterday that actually strengthen or fix or or improve the overall air travel system. We wish that's where they had put their focus.
0: So where do you think, uh, it sounds like maybe everywhere, but where do you think specifically this proposed legislation falls short?
2: So, for example, uh, things that we have advocated for that could improve the overall travel system, um, we are in sorely need of investment in airport infrastructure. I think recently the Vancouver Airport released a report that identified that there are infrastructure deficits. We've heard from the CEO of Pearson that one of the the reasons why Toronto had some issues during the holiday season was their baggage system is antiquated. So we need that. We also need a system whereby the various parties and organizations involved in the air travel chain are held to greater account. Um, Sort of one of the philosophies behind the changes yesterday is that there's this myth or or, or misperception that it's only airlines that uh, are involved in the air travel chain. And that's simply not correct. Airports, uh, air navigation, security, customs, all those organizations involved in the system need to have a system of shared accountability so that uh, we can identify deficiencies and fix them. Instead, the changes yesterday really continued this uh, this this uh, the system of only holding one entity in a larger chain to account.
0: Well, and we recently saw the report. It came out from Vancouver International Airport, and it's a $40 million plan to do just that. It takes a look at the chaos in December, which wasn't only in Vancouver. As you know, it was at at many airports. But uh, like you say, yes, it brought airlines in and showed where perhaps they uh, fell short, but it also looked at ground crews. It looked at the number of gates. It looked at capacity, and it looked at all of these things that that that... they say needs fixing. So would it be better, do you think, if we individually did that or did that for every airport?
2: Yeah, I, I would say I, I took a look, I've taken a look at the Vancouver Airport uh, report. I think they did a very good job at identifying where improvements can be made. At, at a national level, we've been calling for what we've called a system of shared accountability so that all the parties, no matter where they are in the country, uh, would be held to service standards, uh, there would be better data sharing amongst the parties so that, again, problems could be identified before they lead to disruptions. And uh, and even having these different parties held accountable financially in a sense. And we're still kind of working through those uh, those those proposals. But that to us is a better system than what was proposed yesterday, which, again, just continues to hold only airlines to account, um, regardless of whether they were the fault or, or the cause of the disruption in the first place.
0: Uh, The NDP critic was on this show yesterday and also has been talking about this and I've heard it a few other places as well that it would have been better if the Canadian government looked at the model used in the EU and adopted something very similar if not something the same as that model. Is that something you think that would work better or would work at all here?
2: Yeah, I can tell you we've had a really close look at the European model. In fact, we've had some folks from Geneva come to Ottawa We offered to arrange briefings for folks like Mr. Backrack that that you identified. He he declined. Uh, I can tell you the European model is actually not that good. It's kind of held up sometimes as the gold standard, and it certainly is not. Um, In fact, the only party or the only group in in the European Union that seems to like it are the lawyers, because it has been subject to a considerable amount of litigation. There's something like 50 court cases that have helped to kind of shape what the European system uh, looks like and how exemptions work. Um, We don't want that kind of a system in Canada where it's essentially a system of pure litigation. So, uh, and and by the way, the Canadian system overall is actually uh, shown to work. We do have a significant backlog at present with the CTA. That was due to some very unique circumstances in 2022, which we all acknowledge, but overall, the system has shown to work in various audits and reports that have been done. It just does need to be streamlined, and we agree with that aspect. But again, by, by having a system in place where only one entity is held to account, that doesn't improve the air travel system overall for passengers.
0: Is it also very different in that if anybody if you've ever traveled in Europe, you know, there are considerably more options. So if your flight, say, is canceled or it's delayed, there are way more options to get you on another flight. So even with another airline, is it not a system where, sure, it does maybe hold airlines to account more, but there aren't the same issues we have in Canada?
2: yeah, no question. Uh, of course, Europe is a much smaller geographic area with a much larger population density. there's There's greater choice in airlines there. Um, they also have you know very different climatic conditions. I mean, Paris gets a lot less snow days than Winnipeg. and therefore, as some have suggested, uh, whereby we remove, exemptions for things like safety caused by weather delays for example i mean comparing canada and the european union simply it's it's comparing apples to oranges so it, it is a very different system there uh and and again so for those who are saying well we should just adopt holus bolus the european model um doesn't make sense and, and by the way i know mr baccarat has has suggested that there sort of be an automatic compensation uh if, if there is a disruption or delay There's no system in the world, including in the European model, where that occurs. In Europe, you still have to file claims to the airlines as as a starting point, as you do in Canada. So it's it's certainly not uh, a system that's very different from the Canadian model.
0: The concerns with this as well are the the backlog when it comes to the Canadian Transportation Agency and and the the, the number of complaints. Now, I think is the backlog somewhere around forty eight thousand at this point. But also concerns with these changes that it could mean that airlines are going to be passing along more expenses to passengers. How realistic is it? Do you think that that could happen?
2: I think it's an it's a it's a very real possibility. Um, First of all, yes, in the, in the changes announced yesterday, the minister announced a new levy. Uh, so any time a passenger chooses to make a claim to the CTA, and of course, passengers first go to the airline. The airline has 30 days to respond. But if the passenger doesn't agree with it, then they have the voluntary option to make a claim to the CTA. Under the new changes, uh, the airlines will actually have to pay a levy every time a passenger chooses to do that. So that's a new fee. Um, But in addition, we saw in the budget uh, a few weeks ago a 33% increase in security charges. A few months ago, we had about a 30% increase in air navigation fees. We've had increases in airport improvement fees across the country. Um, And this is, of course, all on top of things like labour and fuel costs, which have all gone up. So all this to say that all these extra third-party fees, which actually make up a a significant proportion of an airline ticket charge... Um, Those are all going up. So at some point, yeah, at some point, uh, it's very likely that 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 will be reflected in, in the fares that passengers have to pay.
0: So is any part of this, do you think, going in the right direction as far as – because at the end of the day, isn't it – I mean, people want to travel that is seamless whenever possible, that's efficient, flights that leave on time, security lines that don't don't snake their way through the entire airport. Uh, It seems like everybody has the common goal. Is this getting us anywhere near there?
2: So you're absolutely correct. Everybody – and I would say this, like, you know, government – uh, everyone in the air passenger or the air travel system wants just what you said, a seamless, safe, efficient travel experience for all. That's in everyone's best interest. Um, I, I, I will say this. I think what, the, what something the minister said yesterday, which is that he is looking at and will likely soon make additional announcements on this concept of shared accountability, whereby all the parties who are involved in the air travel experience, Um, he's going to be making some announcements in that respect soon. So we don't know when that is. We don't know exactly what that will look like. But the fact that he signaled that that is coming is good news, Um, because it gets to what you just said. It it gets to actually fixing or improving air travel, because we know that the best uh, passenger rights regime is one in which a passenger doesn't have to be disrupted in the first place. And so we can only do that by, by addressing some of the upstream uh, problems in the system. And, and again, there's, there's solutions to do that.
0: Do you think airlines are prepared for this summer for the increase in travel? Although maybe if a lot of people were waiting for their passports to be renewed, that might not be happening. But are airlines ready for this return to, to pre-pandemic levels and for people getting back and traveling?
2: Yeah, we we get that question a lot. And, and the answer is yes, uh, at least from the airline's perspective. Uh, last summer, summer 2022, was an absolutely unique experience whereby we were just coming out of a uh, pandemic, of the restrictions being lifted. Air travel demand soared by about 300% in, in, a, in a few short months. So everybody, including the federal government, was really scrambling to, to meet that demand after essentially being shuttered for a couple of years. Um, this summer, and and frankly, I would say really since the start of the year, uh, at least uh, uh, staffing has has increased. We are now back to pre-pandemic levels for staffing at airlines. I think that there's better communication between the different parties. I I can't guarantee that there won't be some kind of disruptions. I mean, we saw, for example, uh, a few months ago, the Americans had a, a technical glitch, which shut down their entire air travel system for a day. can't guarantee that things like that won't happen, but I can say that they're, uh, we're in a much, much better place for air travel uh, in this busy summer period coming up than, than was the case last year.
0: All right. Jeff, thanks so much for joining the show, for talking more about this. Uh, appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again soon.
2: Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the offer.
0: Coming up this half hour, we are going to be talking more about the elite athletes demanding a public inquiry into abuse in sports. We heard more about this at a House of Commons committee yesterday. Several athletes appearing in front of that committee and telling stories that we've heard before in some cases, but not in others. But many of the athletes also saying how many times do these stories about alleged abuse, about people being punished, For speaking out, how many times do these stories have to be told before any action is taken? We didn't get uh, any actual promise of a public inquiry from the Minister of Sport, Pascal Saint Ange, but there are still many people pushing for that. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Kira McCormack, uh, one of the first to go public with abuse allegations against a former coach and among those athletes calling for a national inquiry. Uh, Kira, thank you so much for joining us for talking more about this today. Thanks so much for having me. I I was reading about your testimony and and the testimony at the House of Commons Committee, but uh, for, for those that haven't been following along with that, can you recap a little bit about what you talked about and what you told the committee?
3: yeah i mean i think um obviously i told the story of what happened um to myself and my teammates in our time with the white caps in canada soccer um in 2008 and then obviously uh we had about a 12 year period that we were reporting this coach that had gotten um fired for sexual misconduct against minors and how they had covered it up and so obviously I had to tell that story again um and then just again sort of asked the government how many more times do we have to come and tell these stories. I was in front of the government in December as well so obviously got very emotional both times um, in telling it and yeah so that was kind of my message. It's like all the harm has been established over the last two months and now like what are you guys going to do about it and also mentioned you know again there's all the attention goes towards athletes that are on the stage. But there's so many, you know, icons in Canadian soccer, women's soccer that stood up to abusive coaches and lost their careers over it. So I also pointed that out as well.
0: And when you mentioned that and brought that up, and you're absolutely right, how many times do, do people have to hear what happened be reminded of these stories? What kind of a response did you get?
3: Yeah, I mean, the MPs were crying (laughs) during my testimony, some of them. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I I think, again, you know, sitting in the room with the MPs, like I felt like I was met with a lot of empathy and obviously – You know, I was shoulder to shoulder with Andrea Neal, who I've been, you know, fighting this battle with for the last 16 years, and Miriam um, Rondo, who's an Olympic boxer who's getting sued by her coach for defamation when she went through the complaints process like you're told to do as an athlete, and there was an offender there as well, Emily, who's from Vancouver, saying the same thing. So I think, yeah, I mean, I I think there was a lot of empathy towards all of us in, in sharing our stories, and yeah. I mean, again, at this point, the call for, from all of us is for action now. You know, it's, it's like we don't want to keep coming back and it should be enough. We shouldn't have to re-traumatize ourselves anymore, you know.
0: Right. and And I'm guessing, too, that empathy is great and it's great to see that. But what you'd really like to see is action.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we're all saying the same thing. We're all calling for a national judicial inquiry. You know, when the whole Ben Johnson scandal happened in 88, you know, within a two week period, they turned around and called a national judicial inquiry. And, you know, Canada became a world leader on doping. And, you know, it's again, it's, it's it's just not good enough. And there's so many, so many people have children playing sports or so many children playing sports. It's not a safe space. It's been clearly identified. It's been, you know, it's been shown repeatedly. It doesn't matter the sport, gender, province, whatever. Like this is a huge, huge issue in Canadian sport. And again, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable for this to go on anymore. And at this point, you're either on the wrong side or the right side of history. And if you're on this side of the National Judicial Inquiry to get to the bottom of it, you're on the right side. And we're just continuing to push forward for that
0: do you think things have changed or or much has changed since since what happened to you and since since that came out I know that, that the coach was charged and, and convicted but like you said when we're hearing from so many other athletes who are coming forward do, do you think things have changed?
3: no nothing's changed I mean I think I think again they've been forced to sort of acknowledge the problem which pathetically prior to even in our situation the Vancouver whitecaps and Canada soccer for months, just put out again, these sort of PR jobs and, and then, you know, had these investigations that are really just, again, glorified PR jobs run by lawyers and they call them investigations. And so, you know, I, I think, From that standpoint now, I think, you know, parents and this has you know, gotten out into the public and people understand that this is a serious issue, but systemically nothing's changed. And unless you change the system, you know, you can fire the odd person that's a leader in these different NSOs, national sport organizations. But again, until there's something substantial done systemically and that can't be done until you, you know, until you diagnose the problem, which is what we're asking for in the judicial inquiry Nothing's going to change, you know, so from that standpoint, no, I think it's exactly the same. And that's what I find most disheartening about this entire situation. Because obviously, like I said, we've been going through it for, you know, since 2007
0: and do you think uh, did it create maybe more attention with with what we've seen recently in hockey canada and uh, even um, in the last couple of weeks the, the the funding being restored to that organization but with what kind of came about with the the funds and how they were they were paying people and and uh, keeping quite quiet d- does that is that getting more attention paid to abuse in sport
3: yeah absolutely the fact that hockey you know obviously is such a canadian he- Sport and, And it's such a, you know, tons of media on that sport. And it was so egregious what they had done. And so I think from that standpoint, for sure, it got a lot of people that maybe necessarily wouldn't be paying attention to this issue or, you know, that aren't necessarily into sports per se, like, it got them into the sort of the public eye. But I think, again, you look at the fact that Hockey Canada, you know, it was a big dramatic, like, take away their funding, and then it was, like, give it back to them with no real systemic change, and I think that that, again, is just very indicative of where we're at, where there's no accountability, no transparency, and there's just so much status quo, and I think, again, all these organizations, children's fees are funding them, it's funding this dysfunction, and I think until, you know, they actually start to, like, feel the pain on a financial level, this is just going to continue.
0: Uh, you mentioned, too, that, that you've been fighting this and involved in this since 2007. And uh, I know you talked to, to the committee or, or talked about uh, when this was happening to you, you left the country to escape that abuse and that there was this this cover-up, there's protection of this known predator. Uh, do you get the sense? I know you say that nothing has changed and, and it's kind of a, a what if, but do you think the same thing would happen today if somebody uh, did call somebody out, made those allegations? there's still this culture of protecting known predators
3: yeah i mean i think on our on our situation it was like beyond egregious in the sense that you know we went into bc soccer with a victim and a police report they did nothing we went to the police they did nothing we went to uh, the media like multiple different forms of media they did nothing i don't think necessarily that would happen per se again but i think again You know, these organizations, they want to cover it up. They don't want to look bad. You know, individual people don't want to have their own careers harmed by being associated with this stuff. And I think, again, I do think that if people could get away with it, there's systems in place that still allow for them to get away with it. So... Yeah, I mean, on that level, I think, again, even yesterday in the hearing, Emily, the fencer from Vancouver, there was, you know, very egregious sexual behavior with minors. And, you know, she was discussing these coaches are out in plain sight, still coaching with no ramifications. And so I think it's, again, it is a present day problem. It's across sports. And like I said, I don't necessarily think that, um, you know, the level that we went through, which was like pure insanity to like live, to be honest, like I don't think necessarily that would happen because I think, again, it's just people have seen now that there's consequences if you try to cover it up. But absolutely, I think there's still tons of people that have massive serious allegations against them that, again, are untouchable based off of how the system is. So those are things that I still absolutely think need to be remedied and why I say that I don't think that much has changed.
0: And do you think a a public inquiry, if there was a national public inquiry, would that change things?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, again, what's also happened in sport is that you have so many of the same people, there's so much conflict of interest, like even in what's been revealed with the Heritage Committee, um, you know, with the hearings. So I think, again, like part of what I think the problem is, is that like it's, again, a very insular community at the top where, they're, where they all are trying to just kind of window dressing things. And there's a lot of people making a lot of money off of the dysfunction of all of it. So I think a national judicial inquiry, you know, again, if it's done properly, would bring in people from outside of sport that would diagnose the problem. And then I think from that, you know, a proper diagnosis, then I think that's where you can start to like have remedies in terms of how to fix things. But I think until you do that, it's just, again, window dressing. And I just think, I think we're all just over it. We're we're past the point. I, I don't want to come back to Ottawa again and have to like tell this story and cry in front of people that I don't know. And, you know, we just, we want progress. And I think that we're very aligned as a group of athletes that that is the way forward. So absolutely. I think that that would be the starting point to start to really systemically change things and, and not have this happen again.
0: So when you hear from the sport minister from Pascal Saint Ange saying that the the government will do something to address these concerns, but there hasn't been a decision yet on whether or not there should be a public inquiry, what message does that send? Honestly, again, and I'll just be extremely blunt as a survivor of all of
3: you know, this all of this, it's it's it is so disheartening like like I said, you know, to to sit in front of those mps for two hours and like pour your heart out to them and cry and again it's all coming from like a very genuine traumatized place and then to come back to our room you know a couple of hours later and then we're you know reading in the media that she's saying that i'm not so sure there might be an investigation and you know, it's just honestly at a human level at this point, like, it's just disgusting. It, it like there's no other word for it, like to not take action after, again, people are pouring their hearts out and saying what is going on behind the scenes to like to not be a part of the solution and, and be holding public office is honestly like I, I just don't think you're fit for office if, if you don't think that there's that this is the time for like, a, you know, to listen to the athletes and to actually take action.
0: All right. Well, uh, I I know there are a lot of people uh, that will agree with you and appreciate that you are still telling your story and calling for this action. Uh, Kira, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us on this sunny Tuesday afternoon. The perfect day to talk more about what was voted on at the Vancouver Park Board. And this was, yes, about the policy. We talked about it earlier this week the policy about what attire is suitable for public pools we now know and joining us to talk more about this is brennan Bastjovansky, vice chair of the vancouver park board and brennan thank you so much for taking some time to talk more about this
4: yeah thank you appreciate uh, having a chance to chat
0: Well, we talked to one of the commissioners earlier about what was even being discussed and why it needed to be discussed. And I know there were a few uh, changes and a few uh, motions uh, that uh, kind of came up and were discussed at the meeting. But can you tell us a bit, so what is the policy now when it comes to what is suitable attire for Vancouver pools? Uh,
4: Look, they they wanted to have, uh, the parker wanted to have a policy that was like the kind of Made it very clear what acceptable attire for swimming in public facilities is. And uh, that allows the uh, employees to have better direction in, when encountering people with questionable uh, swimwear.
0: All right. So, is there actually, will this then be posted, or where will, will people see or be able to see what is now considered suitable?
4: Well, well, there's going to be an education process, both for staff and patrons. Um, they're, they want to make sure, like, it's nice and clear, like, what appropriate swimmer is. And it's very much around, you know, um, a lot of it is based on hygiene and safety. That's the, the biggest part. Uh, some people were wearing inappropriate gear that would uh, put them at risk when they would swim. They'd wear heavy garments, like jeans and sweatpants, uh, or other, other items that would uh, become waterlogged and make it difficult or, or restrict their movement. And uh, the other side was around hygiene, where people would come in off the street, they'd come in from the gym, they'd be sweaty and gross uh, and want to go swimming. And it just makes it an unpleasant experience for other patrons. Uh, so those are, the, those are a big part of what's being introduced.
0: Hmm. It was, was that happening a lot then, that people were swimming in jeans and sweatpants or just coming in off the street and wanting to jump in the pool?
4: Uh, it was a, enough of a regular occurrence. That, uh, that staff wanted to have uh, guidance and a, a consistent policy that they could refer to.
0: All right. So, and so the policy, is, uh, as I understand it, then anything that that is deemed a bathing suit, that is, is something for swimming or something that doesn't do, like you said, doesn't isn't like a sweat pant that that absorbs water or could could impede your movement, that will be OK moving forward?
4: Uh, yes, the uh, thing around safety and hygiene is the, the primary side. And then the other side was uh, to make sure that the um, that people understand that uh, the genitals need to be covered. And so, you know, it's um, uh, the park board is, is, you know, still supportive of having uh, every, every body is still allowed to uh, swim topless at the facilities. That's not changing. That, that law has been in place for a couple of decades. Um, but they do want to provide more clarity and uh, direct policies to make sure that the items, one, they cover the important bits uh, and they're not like translucent or see-through or only do a partial job of covering. Uh, the, you know, it's a family environment and uh, we want to make sure that everyone feels safe and welcome when they're there.
0: All right. And uh, this may be going into a bit too much detail, but since we are talking about what's acceptable and not, when you talk about, so swimwear must cover the genitals, but what if somebody is wearing, say, a string bikini that doesn't really cover the butt cheek? Uh,
4: Well, butt cheek is not genitals. So the the same with breasts, breasts and butt cheeks are, they are allowed to be, um, they are allowed to be uncovered uh, for the most part. So string bikinis are uh, are allowed uh, under this policy.
0: All right, and, and you mentioned too this this whole idea of swimming topless. That it, this was uh, something that was dealt with uh, some time ago. Uh, maybe people weren't weren't aware of that policy or the fact that that it's not okay. You can't kind of discriminate uh, against different people say some can and some can't Uh, is that an issue though when you say that the issue of people wearing jeans and sweatpants and and coming in off the street with their clothes and wanting to swim happened enough that it needed to be dealt with Uh, is it something that that people are swimming topless and that that was something too that needed to be clarified that that was okay
4: Uh, actually the the topless issue that's been around for such a long time And uh, it's part of the fabric, but it's not very not used very much. So that wasn't actually the um, the issue. Uh, It was more around safety, hygiene, and just the the uh, the covering of genitals that became uh, that were the current issues.
0: Okay. Uh, When we uh, talked to uh, uh, Park Board Commissioner uh, Digby earlier on, and uh, I think the the one comment he made that was getting a lot of replay and a lot of attention was, he said there was uh, an individual who was known to come to the pool wearing a sock as a bathing suit, uh, not on his foot. And uh, so I would imagine that this policy moving forward, this at least gives staff then, so if somebody was to come into the pool now, dressed that way, staff would what, be able to, say, to look to this policy and say, you can't swim like that?
4: So the, uh, yeah, the, the policy is designed to make sure that uh, people understand what is acceptable. And so that item has to be designed for swimming. Uh, so based on material, based on fit, maybe it's not going you know, to slip off um, and does a job of covering. Uh, and so, yeah, that, uh, in those particular incidents, it'll make it easier for the staff, to uh, let the patron know that the, there's a change in policy, that's no longer part of it. Um, provide the education, and uh, and uh, hopefully they're able to fall in line.
0: Right, but even on the the appropriate swimming attire list that I was looking at, um, t-shirts and shorts were on that list. So is, would that be okay for somebody to swim in a t-shirt and shorts?
4: Uh, if the t-shirt and shorts are clean and if they are actually like uh, designed for swimming, some shorts and t-shirts. Uh, or fabrics that you can't actually use uh, in the pool. Okay. Uh, but if you're coming straight out of the gym and want to go swimming, like streetwear, streetwear is not going to be allowed as part of that policy.
0: Okay, so so streetwear right out of the gym, or I would imagine too, maybe uh, some shorts are also made of of like sweatpant materials, something like that would would still be not acceptable.
4: That's correct. Anything that's going to weigh you down or impede your ability to swim. Uh, some types of shorts of fabrics that uh, that don't get heavy. And, uh, and same with t-shirts that they cling on a bit more like a, a, a rashy or, um, rash
0: vest. All right. There was some talk I understand as well, or somebody uh, brought up the idea of there could be a financial barrier if somebody can't afford a proper bathing suit or, or these types of clothes and the idea of wearing disposable bathing suits. Was that something that was discussed?
4: Uh, it, it was brought up uh, by, uh, by one of one of, the, um, uh, one of our guests that, uh, that did speak up on it, but it was not part of the, the policy and uh, was not really considered uh, as a barrier for, from, um, from staff's report.
0: Okay. So, so is there, I, I would imagine, I, I don't know that this happens or has happened, but if somebody showed up with a disposable bathing suit, would that be okay to swim in?
4: Uh, there are certain, there are certain items that, uh, that can be worn that are disposable, uh, certain, uh, certain diapers are specifically for swimming, uh, which people that um, uh, are able to wear, uh, but otherwise, yeah, the staff didn't really flag access to swimwear as one of the barriers that this policy would cause
0: all right does this kind of put this this issue do you think to a place where it's been dealt with and we can now move forward with this policy and the questions have all been answered
4: yes uh, i think um you know the other side is that this policy this uh, policy is going on a, a pilot base the uh, the staff of you know the expectation that it's likely to go ahead smoothly although other regions that don't have their these poli- the municipal regions that don't have policies in place are looking to Vancouver, and we want to make sure that it's um, that it's right, it fits for Vancouver, and uh, most importantly, we want to make sure that communities aren't uh, inadvertently uh, excluded from use of pools because of the policy. So, in a year's time, there'll be a review and a report back to board about that progress.
0: All right, well, that, that's uh, it is good to hear that the, it was dealt with and is moving forward. Uh, I'm not sure if you can talk about this. I know I know we, we invited you to talk about the, the swimwear policy uh, today, but I'm curious, are you able to, to just quickly uh, touch as well on the fact that I know the board did uh, talk about drinking at beaches and, and uh, I guess not pools, but being able to have a beverage at uh, beach at, at um, beaches in Vancouver as well that that is going ahead?
4: Uh, The the residents of Vancouver are very excited about being able to uh, drink in parks this summer. Uh, The consumption of alcohol was already happening in Vancouver, um, and this is going to allow better guidance and improve safety. Uh, We're ensuring that uh, glass is not allowed at parks and at beaches. Um, You know, broken glass causes uh, like probably the the biggest danger from what staff tell us if... um, If it's shattered and stuff like that so we're really going to focus on education signage uh, and letting people know what's actually appropriate and there's going to be increased activity with rangers providing education and police supporting uh, that as well but uh, the pilots that ran uh, last year uh, they were very successful uh, and people were good about uh, picking up garbage and putting things in recycling and also make and there weren't an there was no increase in, um, in incident, alcohol-related incidents in the parks.
0: All right. Uh, and, and interesting, too, But the glass bottles, and you mentioned the rangers and police, is that something, is that a ticketable offence, or is it going to be, like you said, more education? And explaining to people why it's not a good mix to have glass on the beach. Uh,
4: so the, uh, there'll be education from the rangers, uh, and there'll also be enforcement, which means that there, there's likely to be uh, penalties uh, associated with that, and while you know, a lot of people are expecting to be able to drink wine from the bottles, um, unfortunately, that's, uh, if for are doing it across the city, that's one of the things people are going to have to get used to possibly drinking uh, out of a box wine, or if you're really fancy, you can decant your wine in a thermos.
0: All right. So interesting uh, moving forward with that as well. Brennan, thank you so much for your time today and bringing us up to date on both of these issues with the Park Board. Appreciate it.
4: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Jill.